What a great song for us to sing about the things that Jesus has done for us and the opportunity that we have to help people praise his great name. You know, there's a phrase in the Old Testament that always uh, sounds so interesting. Uh, The psalmist says, come magnify the Lord with me. How big is God? How big of a magnifying glass would you need to magnify uh, someone who fills the cosmos? And it's not so much from a physical sense that we actually make God bigger. We can't do that. We can't add to God's being. But we can magnify God by the way that we live. And friends, that is exactly what the message of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus has been uh, gathering disciples. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount really occurs pretty early on in Jesus' ministry. And he's been about the process of gathering these followers, these first ones. And in the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most uh, well-loved sermon in all of Christian history, Jesus lays out, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom? Or to put that in more layman's terms, what's a Christian look like? And we started to answer that a little bit uh, last week as we looked at the first three Beatitudes In Matthew chapter 5. I understand Jesus telling someone to be gentle. Because you know what? I've heard that a time or two. Be gentle. My My two firstborns are daughters. You don't treat daughters the same way you treat sons. Be gentle. And I can understand in the Beatitudes that Jesus says with 12 men, be gentle. Be meek. How do you do poverty of spirit? Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. How do, you, how do you do that? That's not the same thing as be gentle. I can do be gentle, and I can work at that. How do I do poverty and mourning? You see, you either get it or you don't get it. You can't manufacture that. And one of the things that we are reminded as we study the Sermon on the Mount is that, friends, listen, God makes some incredibly impossible commands. I don't know anyone that reads the Sermon on the Mount and they get done and they go, check. Got it done. When you hear these words from the lips of our Lord, shouldn't it produce some humility in us to go, you know, God, thank you for how far I've come. But there's still a distance for me to go. So one of the things that we're reminded is that God does give some really rich, some really high, some really lofty standards. But you know the thing that's great? God gives you the ability to do this. Not in and of yourself. This list of things in the Beatitudes is not just something that you knock out in a weekend to-do list. It's not that easy. It's not something you can wake up one morning and set your mind to and say, you know what? I'm going to try to fulfill all the Beatitudes this weekend. Good luck. Because if it's something that you think you have the power to do, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be very frustrated very quickly. Because there's something true about you that's true about me, that's true about every person in this room. We're sinners. 
We fall short of the glory of God. Now, we're redeemed. We're saved sinners. We still wrestle with living the way God wants us to. We need God's supernatural grace, not just to save us, but for us to live the way that he wants us to. Is that true? You know that it is. We cannot live in our own power the way that God asks us to. And so very quickly here, we come to a very important principle that we will find as we study all throughout the Beatitudes. And it's foundational. We don't get beyond this. And it's this. It's that God's mercy always precedes his demands. And God will always give what he commands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Really? That's my assignment? Apart from the grace of God, I'm going to go down in flames. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Who's got it, Who's got it harder? I don't know. They both sound like impossibly, impossible tasks. And so to remember that these things that God tells us in the Beatitudes, His mercy will give us the spirit that enables us to live the way that God says. When he tells us to be poor in spirit, he'll give you the humility. Say, God, I'm bankrupt before you. When he tells you to mourn over your sin, he will grant it. When he tells you to be meek, to be gentle, to be merciful, these are all gifts that God gives to his children. And a great example of this principle, that God's mercy always precedes his demands, is a quick illustration from Old Testament history. You remember the story of baby Moses. Moses was raised up to be a deliverer of God's people. And uh, Moses kind of attempted to be a deliverer, kind of a young man, and God had to send him to the desert to kind of learn some stuff over 40 years. And after 40 years, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, I'm raising you up to be a deliverer. You thought you were a deliverer back then, but you weren't ready. Now you're going to be a deliverer. And we all know the story. Moses goes down, he confronts Pharaoh, and by great signs and wonders, what does he do? He rescues God's people, millions of them, and they are fleeing from Egypt, and they come to a body of water called the Red Sea. And what does God do for them? Parts the water. It's like this aisle right here. Water over here, water over here. They pass through on dry ground. What is that? God's mercy. Now, once they get across, you know what happens. They kind of wander in the wilderness on the other side of that sea. And God comes down and he talks with Moses. And what does he do? He gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law. Why didn't God give the law first? Because his mercy always precedes his demands. His salvation comes first. And then he says, all right, guys, listen. I need you to understand what that means. You're to live differently. You're to live according to my law. You're to live according to my word. You're to live according to my spirit. So his mercy, his grace, precedes his demands. So keeping that in mind, friends, be just a tad bit frustrated when you read the Beatitudes. Because part of their teaching motive is to make you say, I can't do it. But God can. 
And so we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. It's on page 683 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we think it's important for everyone to have it. So you take ours and we'll buy another one. And so uh, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 6 and 7. Last week, as we looked at the first three Beatitudes, they really forced us to reckon with who we are. Poverty of spirit, mourning over our sin, meek towards others. But these next two Beatitudes really turn us from ourself and turn us towards God and others. You see, God deeply, deeply wants His people to be humble in how we view ourselves and how we view God and how we view others. But He doesn't want us to be so paralyzed by our need of humility that we're of no good to anyone else. You ever heard of someone who's a navel gazer? All they do is kind of sit here and meditate on, you know, what a worm they are. And they never get beyond just trying to struggle with this human. I got to be humble. I don't want to do anything because then I want to be humble. And so God wants us to be humble. But he wants us to not be so self-reflective that we never do anything. It's kind of like this. For those of you that are parents... It's a major milestone of maturity when your kid starts to realize that other people exist. I'd be content for them to realize that siblings exist. It's a major milestone for your child to understand that other people are precious. That's why you don't interrupt adults when they're talking, kids. In the same way, it is a major mark of spiritual maturity to not just be a receiver of what God has given but a giver. Understand that one of the reasons God has saved you is to minister to other people. So a mature Christian is focused on God and eager to serve others by his grace. And so we come to the fourth beatitude, and we find that in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5. God's word says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He starts off with a very vivid word picture. He talks about hungering and thirsting. And unfortunately, in our context, we have to do a little bit of translation. Because I seriously doubt that most Americans have ever truly experienced hunger or thirst. I'm not talking about your tummy rumbling, like at about 11.45 today. You know, you're starting to think about lunch, you know. uh, That's hunger. That's not the kind of hunger that he's talking about here. So he's talking about something that is outside the realm of our experience. He he puts it very viscerally. It's vivid. It's intense. There's a desire for this very fundamental physical need. I need food to live. I need water. And he says, in the same way that you have that desire for food and water, you have a desire for righteousness. And just like your stomach lets you know when it's time to fill it up, your spirit goes, you know what? I'm hungry for righteousness because I have none of my own. My righteousness tank, it's empty and it has been since Dow was born. I need righteousness, and I need to find the place where I can get it. It's hungering for God. It's hungering for Christ. It's knowing that you have a need and going to the source that can fix it. 
So we hunger and thirst, but we hunger and thirst for what? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that's a, that's a big biblical word. We're not going to have a sermon just on righteousness, but it's important for us to consider for a few minutes what righteousness is. If you're a Bible student, I've got four scripture references you might want to write down. Because all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks consistently about righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. You want righteousness? Persecution may be part of the deal. Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be noticed by them. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, righteousness is a huge theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And when we talk about righteousness, a good way for us to figure out what is righteousness is to realize this, it is primarily relational. Righteousness is primarily relational. It is when things in a relationship are as they should be. So there is righteousness in your marriage when there's no hard feelings between a husband and wife. There's righteousness in a family when mom and dad and kids, you're good. There's righteousness in a workplace when employer and employee get along and they can have difficult conversations about things that need to happen. But this raises the question, when we talk about righteousness, being relational, does this talk about our relationship with God or does it talk about our relationship with others? Well, it depends on who you ask. You see, if you ask Paul, the great apostle, Paul is the preacher of righteousness par excellence. It is about a man's relationship with God and how we are sinners, and we need to be reconciled to God. We have rebelled against Him in miracle of miracles through Christ. Christ takes our sin, and He gives us His righteousness. It's kind of like a, kind of like a bank account. He takes all of our debits, which are many, and He takes all of His credit, which is inestimable, and He puts it in our account. You don't deserve it. But that's what he does. That's what the Bible calls the doctrine of justification. When we believe in Christ, God no longer looks at us as a sinner. He looks at us as one who has been redeemed by the blood of his son. Praise God. So for Paul, when we talk about righteousness, Paul's definition of righteousness is always a man's relationship with God. And how do we get that right? Now that may be the number one way that the Bible talks about righteousness, but here's the problem. The word righteousness is never used that way in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, for Matthew, righteousness is about how you interact with other people. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. When, Lord? As much as you have done it to the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. So for Matthew, righteousness is primarily this kind of relationship. For Paul, righteousness is primarily this kind of relationship. Which is it? Which is it? Is it a righteousness that is imputed to us 
by God or a righteousness that is imparted by us to other people? It's both. Because you see, the great truth of the Christian life is that when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl get right with God, friends, this is the truth that needs to be proclaimed in our churches. It should make a difference in how we relate to human beings. What difference does it make for you to have it right here if nobody can tell? And so the message of the Bible is don't divide these things. The the God who saves you and makes you righteous in his sight enables you to have an impact on people around you. You see, everybody wants forgiveness, don't you? Get the slate wiped clean. But not everybody wants a job description, do they? As it has been done for you, go and do likewise. You mean I don't get the gift without the job? Dang. Guys, it's a package deal. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. It comes together. And the message when it comes to righteousness is that those who have been given God's forgiveness, those who have been forgiven, are given of His Spirit that they might live differently. They might fulfill God's agenda. I've said it like this, being right with God is the foundation for living rightly for God in the world. Being right with God is the foundation for living right for God in the world. Don't reverse the order. You cannot live rightly for God in the world without firstly relating rightly with God. A great example again from Old Testament. We should have a Bible drill. Call somebody up here and see who can name all ten commandments in the right order. Who wants to, who wants to volunteer? Yeah. <laughs> you might get them right to get them out of order. I would too. It, it's been widely taught that there are two tables to the law. Two tables to the commandments. You have the first four. Remember what those are? No other gods before me. No idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What are all those commandments related to? They're related to God. But then there's six more that come. You remember those? Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Honor your parents. There's six of them that relate to what? How we relate with each other. I think it's interesting that there's six commandments to regulate how we interact, and there's only four with how we relate to God. See, relating to God is really simple if you're going to do it by the book. Not a lot of rules. One God, day of rest, don't use his name in a bad way. But there's all kinds of ways we can mess up our righteousness by how we interact with each other. People come to see me throughout the week, they're coming to me not because they have a problem with God, but because they have a problem with people. And then that usually translates into a problem with God. And so remember that to be effective, to honor God, we have to have a right relationship with Him. But we need to understand that we have a responsibility to live rightly for God. One of the things that I think is just really gracious about this passage 
Did you see who is blessed in the passage? It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Don't get too frustrated with this verse yet. Because I want you to recognize that people are blessed not for possessed righteousness, but for desired righteousness. Does that do anybody's heart good besides me? God is telling me, hey, listen, chump. You tried. It's pretty good. But you didn't quite make it, did you? No, I didn't. What do you want? I, I want to knock it out of the park. I want to get it right. And he says, you know what? Bless you. Because what's important, you're never going to escape being a human being, Scott. You're going to try and you're going to fall short. Now, there might be times that you get a little further down the road. But what he's blessing is the fact that there is a desire that even when I fail, I will try again. That I believe that God's Spirit will continue to work in me, to convict me, and to make me not stop. And what he's saying here is, guys, listen, I don't really care about your failures. I care about what you are aiming at. Friends, you don't need to be perfect. That's why Jesus came. Do you desire to honor him as your king? We're not blessed because we feel righteous. We're certainly not blessed because we are righteous. We're blessed because we're starved. And we know that we're in need of it. Jesus isn't blessing those who are well aware of their righteousness. There's people like that. I'm good and I want everyone to know it. They're not the most attractive people. Rather, Jesus is blessing those who notice that righteousness is painfully absent from their life. So friend, don't be frustrated by your lack of perfection. Be encouraged by righteous desires. The fifth beatitude in verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The fifth beatitude is about giving mercy for receiving mercy. Now, what is mercy? The best definition I can think of is that mercy means forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the needy. Mercy means forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the needy. Um, When you've had a certain life experience... And you've learned something from it. And then a friend or a coworker has a similar thing that happens in their life. And they're struggling to put together the pieces of how they deal with this. What do you say when you go to comfort your friend? Friend, I've been through this and I understand what you're going through. My situation was a little bit different, but I understand what your heart is wrestling with. We talk a lot about understanding, and I think we actually understand the word very little. Okay, think about this. I understand. I am putting myself in a supportive position to you. So I am standing underneath you, holding you up, 
Because I understand. Most of the time when we say we understand something, it's just a trite way to say, get over your problems. Oh, I understand. I dealt with that too, but you know, I'm all right now. Understanding means having mercy. Being sensitive to others. Understanding. Being willing to be a support, an encouragement, a shoulder to cry on. What I love about this, the reward is awesome. It says, blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. The reward is not mercy reciprocated by others. I'm going to be merciful to Marcy, and you know what? She's going to be merciful to me. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about at all. I'm going to give Marcy mercy, and who's going to give me mercy? God is. He's going to be merciful to me. And this raises a crazy question. Is God really saying, if you are not merciful, you will not receive mercy? Absolutely. He is. He's saying, if you're not merciful, don't expect to receive mercy from me. But it's important for us to say, our mercy is not the cause of our receiving mercy. Our mercy is the effect of having received mercy from God. When God forgives us, when God says He understands, when God gives us grace, we want to give it to others. We want to give what we've got. And I love it. I don't know if you've ever seen a wanted poster. Who can I pick on here? I need a law enforcement professional. Charles Guyton. Okay? We go to the post office here after church, and you see a sign that says, Wanted for murder. That for, F-O-R, doesn't mean that Charles is wanted in order that he might murder someone. It says he's wanted because he has murdered someone. So when we talk about we give mercy for receiving mercy, we're not giving mercy in order to get something. We're giving it because we've already gotten it. Okay, I think that's a helpful illustration. To say, we give mercy for receiving it because we have received it, not in order to receive it. And here's the thing that's interesting, is you watch the progression of the Beatitudes Be spiritually poor. Mourn over your sin. Be meek in personality. Be repentant. I.e., those who have received mercy. You know what's really interesting? People who have received mercy are really good at being merciful. It's a mark of being a Christian. Being merciful is the natural result of experiencing God's great grace. The opposite is true, too. If you're not merciful, you must not have received his mercy in the first place. But if you've received his righteousness, it will translate into how you treat others. You see, we say we want a right relationship with God, but it will show in how we relate to others. If it doesn't, then your right relationship is a sham. It's fake. It's a fabrication. Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew chapter 18. There's a man who is called in by the king because he owes a balance of 10,000 talents. 
which according to my calculations would be $8 billion. How do you like them apples? How many of you would ever have the opportunity to pay off a debt of $8 billion? Do you know what the king does? He forgives the debt. And the man goes out, and you know what he finds? A buddy that owes him money from his fantasy football league. 100 denarii, which is basically $11,000 by today's standards. So you have a man who has just been forgiven a debt of $8 billion, and he beats a guy up and turns him over to a collection agency over $11,000. What's the point? Oh, friend, be careful the standard that you exact upon others and pray that God doesn't use the standard that you use against you. Because God is merciful. And he says that when we have received mercy, we should give it. So why in the world would a person not be merciful? Well, I think it's really easy. You realize mercy is always going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Cost your time. You see that guy on the side of the road with the unemployment sign or the guy that's hitchhiking and you know doesn't have anywhere to go. It's going to cost you time to stop and try to minister to him. It might cost you your talents or your abilities. We have a widow in the church that needs something done at her home. Having mercy, you're going to have to use your talents for something that doesn't serve you but serves others. It might cost you your treasure. You're going to have to spend your money for something to show mercy, perhaps. And unfortunately, when it comes to the discipline of showing mercy, there's people who just refuse to pay, who refuse to be inconvenienced, or they just flat out refuse to see the need. Yet showing mercy is such a hallmark of true conversion that without it, we just might hear Jesus say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Because of our lack of mercy, it will be clear that we never knew him. The challenge in this, when we talk about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, pursuing God with great intensity, and being merciful, pursuing others with likewise desire, is that instead of being self-seeking, self-serving the Christian hungers for a righteousness that is self-sacrificing and friends the reason we can sacrifice is because there is one who sacrificed himself for us and if we are to be called by his name then we should go and do likewise pray with me please God, help us this morning to understand our desires. And help us to see clearly that sometimes our desires are so weak and poor. We desire the wrong things. When you paint a picture for us of what a disciple looks like, these things, these beatitudes, these attitudes that we should have, point out where our desires should be. And so God, we thank you for your great grace and mercy 
that even this morning, as we measure ourselves against the plumb line of your word, if we realize that our desires are out of whack, they don't measure up, you give us today the opportunity to turn and to repent. Lord, if we hear this message of having Christ live in us and help us to be different people, and we don't understand it, help us to realize that by having that humbleness of spirit, that today we can begin a relationship with you. Help us desire corporately as a church to be the kind of church that hungers and thirsts after your righteousness and is zealous, excited, desirous of being merciful, of taking people where they're at, loving them where they're at, and leading them to where you would have them to be. God, purify our desires and let it begin in my heart. In Jesus' name.